Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there. Before we jump into this massive episode of Bismarck Rise, I just wanted to remind you that this episode has been possible because of the wonderful support you guys give me over on Patreon. If you're wondering what the fuss is all about with Patreon, the great thing about it is that not only do I get your monetary support, but you also get some serious benefits in return. Hours of extra content, loads of exclusive series you won't get anywhere else. And if you join up now at any level, you'll not only get all of that stuff, you'll also be able to fast forward a whole week and get the final episode of Bismarck Rise instantly. If that wasn't reason enough to sign up, then consider the fact that you can access such series as Poland Is Not Yet Lost, The Suez Crisis of 1956, a biography series on Jan Sobieski, and so many more little episodes and details besides. Patreon powers this podcast, but wonderful listeners like yourself don't have to go on Patreon to keep me going. Simply spread the word on social media, join up with us in Facebook on the Facebook group or page, or follow us on Twitter and spread the word that way. In times like these, particularly, this podcast is at the mercy of your guys' support, and you have done a fantastic job of getting the word out there. I can't say enough how much I appreciate it all, but we could always get bigger and do better, so let's aim for that. And in the meantime, while you mull all that over, I hope you can enjoy this penultimate episode of Bismarck Rise. Trust me, you're going to enjoy it. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to our Bismarck party. This is Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails, and this is episode 7. It's the penultimate episode of this series, but the story is by no means over yet. In fact, it's only just beginning. Literally, Bismarck's story was only just beginning. We will leave him in 1864, but Bismarck's not really known for the stuff that he did in 1864 and beforehand. So don't worry, in the future we will tackle all of this story in all of its glory. Which rhymes! Remember, if you want to access the final episode right this minute, head on over to Patreon where you can do so right now. For any level of support, all of these episodes can be yours. And if you're interested in listening to this in the future, it's going to be the latter half of this year when the rest of the story is addressed. But if you want to listen to that, make sure you subscribe to our Patreon page at the $12 level, the PhD pal level or above. In return for that, you'll get our 30 Years War book signed and you'll also get all of these Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails episodes once they're released. 
I hope that over the last few weeks or so, or instantaneously if you're listening to this through Patreon, but I hope that over the last few weeks you've been able to enjoy this series and you've been able to relax as well. Maybe it's brought you some cheer. I hope it has. I genuinely do hope it has because this is a difficult time for everyone and it's scary to see the news these days and see how many people have died, how many have contracted it, etc, etc. It seems hard to remember a time before COVID, but... The best thing we can do is to return to the things that make us happy. Bismarck made me happy, which is why I did this. And hopefully Bismarck has made you happy too. It's the very least he can do, considering all the people he made so utterly miserable. Speaking of which, in the last episode, we saw Bismarck make a number of people very miserable indeed. We saw him hold on through the blood and iron speech, and we also saw how he managed to turn the situation to his favour in the Albansleben Convention incident. Now, the Albansleben Convention thing didn't quite go Bismarck's way, but we also established the point that since Poland was the real issue at stake here, and since no one was really willing to go to bat for Poland in the 1860s, Bismarck was pretty much safe, even if he did make a few whoopsies along the way. By the middle of the year of 1863, he had pretty much established himself. He had established himself in the foreign ministry, and he had also shown exactly what he was made of when it came to holding on to his position and fighting for his interests. He established a pattern in his relationship with the king as well. Bismarck's penchant for, well, bullying, I suppose you could call it, and holding on no matter what, was something he would replicate during the Congress of Princes incident. And that incident is going to come under our microscope in this episode here, along with a whole load of other things. So I hope you're looking forward to it. For now, though, let's get back to our story. And our story resumes from essentially the middle of the year in 1863. Bismarck had struggled with liberal peers in the Landtag, he had struggled with his king, and he had struggled with foreign powers to try and make them see things Prussia's way. But Bismarck wasn't the only one struggling. Across the border in Austria, the Austrian Emperor Franz Josef was also in something of a difficult position. The main reason for this was because it seemed as though, in Vienna, a liberal tide was slowly sweeping through Austria's institutions. The first step in this direction had been what was called the February Patent of 1861, which gave Vienna's parliament a stronger voice. This voice was much stronger than the one that the Prussians had. The Landtag in Prussia was essentially a debating house. It had power to pass legislation in some cases, but it could also be closed indefinitely, and its members rendered basically redundant as a result. Austrian Emperor Franz Josef certainly seemed willing to give in to many liberal demands. This was probably a byproduct of the pressure he was facing in the aftermath of the Crimean debacle, and then the war with France. The Hungarians were always a worry, but if the rest of the Austrian polyglot empire could be got on side, then at least then they could, united, direct their attentions towards the Magyar menace. Perhaps liberalism was the best way to do this, but Franz Josef wasn't only thinking of Austria in this regard. He was also hoping that by posing as some kind of a leader of liberal ideas, he would be able to get other German states on his side. In fact, after preparing for just such an event, Franz Josef now seemed poised to answer the German question, to reimagine the German Confederation and to place Austria at its head. All he needed in order to do this, all Franz Josef needed in order to serve as the liberal figurehead of some concept of a united German Federation, or whatever it was he was planning, 
All that Franz Josef needed was the consent of the other Germans, the consent of the other German leaders who ruled their states. It proved surprisingly easy to get the consent from all of these figures, but it was obviously most important that the largest of these states attended as well. So, Franz Josef planned to petition King Wilhelm of Prussia in person to make sure that Wilhelm was on board with this scheme and to make sure that, when it came down to it, he would vouch for Austria and, as a result, he would vouch for Austria's leadership of a German confederation. If that sounds as though everything has escalated very quickly in Germany all of a sudden, then yes, you're right, it has. But it couldn't be denied at the same time that, while Bismarck had Austria in his focus, he had taken his eye off the ball a little bit to focus on matters at home. And while focusing on matters at home, it seemed as though Bismarck was determined to push as many liberals as he could into the eager arms of Vienna. On the 27th of May 1863, Bismarck closed the Landtag once again. And on the 1st of June, and on the 1st of June, Bismarck tackled his most controversial task yet, issuing the press decree. The press decree was something seriously extreme, even by the standards of the time, and it was a byproduct of Bismarck's increasing sensitivity towards criticism, criticism which had been directed at him from several angles during the Alvensleben Convention, and before that, during the Iron and Blood speech. Perhaps Bismarck was sick and tired of being criticised. Perhaps he was sick of hearing the opinions of people who he knew deep down didn't have sufficient information at their disposal to be making such judgments. It must have been frustrating, but it's also hard to deny that Bismarck seriously overreacted in this press decree. According to the terms of the press decree, all tracts that would bring the state, the king, the government, or even the church into disrepute could be banned. And it was kept sufficiently vague, so that things which may just irritate Bismarck could potentially be shut down as well. Ostensibly, of course, This was put forward to protect the king and the king's interests and Prussia's interests from criticism. But realistically, and this was a fact which most people realised from a very early stage, this press decree would, at its core, protect Bismarck as well. And you could be forgiven for thinking that the main reason it was passed was to protect that same Bismarck from having to hear any criticism in the future. If, in other words, he had tried to dress this press decree thing up in acceptable clothing, Then these efforts failed. But Bismarck, it has to be said, didn't try particularly hard to dress it up. He persuaded the king after a short campaign and manipulation, and the king reluctantly signed the decree. A decree was possible, of course, because the land tag was closed, and with no land tag, the king could essentially rule by decree. Thus we see the absolutist origins of the Prussian kingdom coming to the fore once more. And you can be darn sure that Bismarck was willing to use every means at his disposal in order to get things done. Sometimes a decree, which could just be signed into law, was a faster way of doing this than having to listen to those fuddy-duddies in the Landtag, who certainly were not about to put limits on the amount of press freedoms that were available. This press decree is mostly forgotten today, but it does show that Bismarck was immensely sensitive and perhaps believed that the more he was criticised, the more his position would be undermined. It was important, Bismarck believed, to nip these critics in the bud now, before they undermined him and blocked him from pursuing the policy course that he had always planned for. Once his policies had been achieved, Bismarck surely imagined, he would be popular enough that he wouldn't have to repress what the public were really thinking. 
but for the moment, it was easier to ensure that the only voices which were heard were voices that Bismarck wanted to hear. Edward Cramshaw described the provisions of the decree, saying, It exploited a section of the Press Law of 1851, which, in spite of the formal abolition of censorship under the new constitution, gave the government of Prussia extraordinary powers. It could confiscate and impose heavy fines for incitement to hatred and contempt, for slander, for publishing false information, a fairly fine-meshed net. More, it could legislate for any other restrictions that might come into its head. What came into Bismarck's head was to introduce a new statute under which a newspaper could be banned, not simply for printing a specific article which might be regarded as offensive, but also for exhibiting a general attitude that might be held to jeopardise the public welfare. This was blanket censorship by another name, without even the bureaucratic safeguard of an official censor's department. If you weren't aware yet, Bismarck had some pretty unsavoury aspects to his character, which incidents like these really bring to the fore. Nobody else, no other minister-president, had felt the need to bring in a law like this. No other minister-president had aroused so much controversy. The real surprise is that Wilhelm agreed to it, and that he signed this law into being. Bismarck's demand for obedience, it seemed, extended not just to the ministry, to the Landtag, or to the king himself, it also had to extend to the whole country. For now, Bismarck's ire was focused on the media, but in time it would be focused on the civil service, the army, the socialists, the Catholics, and virtually anyone else who got in his way. Because Wilhelm had agreed, Bismarck got his way this time, but the royal family in general was not pleased. Prince Frederick was then on his way to Danzig to inspect soldiers, and he was loud and open in the fact that he was not happy with what had been done here. Frederick had advised his father too late not to agree to any new legislation like this, and on the 4th of June, a few days after the decree had been passed, he wrote to his father explaining the damage that this press decree did to the royal relationship with the country and the political establishment. This, of course, made Wilhelm defensive, probably because he knew deep down that it wasn't a very good idea to begin with. But alas, Wilhelm was already showing signs of being under the spell of his minister-president, a spell which would only increase in potency as the year progressed. Frederick escalated the tension, though. What began as a small disagreement between king and prince escalated quickly, though, because Frederick couldn't seem to let it go. On the 5th of June... Frederick arrived in Danzig for the ceremony of inspecting the troops, and he was greeted by a host who was in his own right pretty daring because he began by exclaiming that he wished the city of Danzig could express the full measure of its opinions on this ceremony, but that owing to the recent press decree, it could not. This led Prince Frederick to reply defiantly, I also lament that I should have come here at a time when a variance has occurred between the government and the people which has occasioned me no small degree of surprise. Of the proceedings which have brought it about, I knew nothing. I was absent. I have had no part in the deliberations which have produced this result. But we all, and I especially, I who best know the noble and fatherly intentions and magnanimous sentiments of His Majesty the King, we all, I say, are confident that, under the sceptre of His Majesty the King, Prussia continues to make sure progress towards the future which Providence has marked out for her.
We really should comment on the tone of this speech by the prince. We can note the blistering sarcasm within it, especially in the last few lines. Evidently, Frederick was not happy with the press decree. But the problem with speeches like these is that they didn't stay quiet for long. Soon enough, the king, the newspapers and Bismarck heard about this. Wilhelm was absolutely furious and he wanted to go as far as arresting his son for insubordination. Uniquely in this situation, Bismarck came to the rescue of Frederick, a man who he never really saw eye to eye with and believed that within the next two decades or so would succeed Wilhelm as king, whereupon Bismarck would have to ride off into the sunset. On the 10th of June, Bismarck and Wilhelm endured a long train journey together, and it was during that time that Bismarck did his best to calm the king down. Wilhelm and Bismarck spoke in French, largely because it was believed at the time that only the royalty would understand the language, and that the servants walking around the carriage wouldn't be clued in on exactly how sensitive the topics of conversation were. During the course of the train journey, Bismarck explained why Wilhelm had to patch things up with Frederick. As was his talent for making a case, Bismarck soon had the king convinced. It was impossible, Bismarck insisted, for the crown to divide itself at a time like this, when it was fighting this struggle with Parliament, and when the last thing it needed was to be disunited over the future of Prussia, or disagreeing over legislation that had been brought in. It was all very well and good for the prince to have his own opinions, and he certainly should not have been so open and so brazen in expressing them, Bismarck conceded. But, your majesty, this by no means meant that a permanent rift between father and son was a good idea. Bismarck even went as far as reminding Wilhelm of Frederick the Great's relationship with his father, and the damage that did, not just to Frederick the Great's development, but, nearly enough, to the actual succession itself. Was this what Wilhelm wanted to do? Compromise in a situation like this was surely better, and Bismarck said to Wilhelm, Let your majesty decide nothing in wrath. State policy only can rightfully determine your conduct. On the 30th of June, Bismarck received a letter from Prince Frederick. Frederick insisted that Bismarck was warping the constitution for his own ends, which he was, that this would end badly, and that he as crown prince wanted no part of it. Interestingly enough, Bismarck didn't even dignify this letter with a reply, and his hands-off, almost reckless approach to Prince Frederick and the prince's interests shows that Bismarck didn't really see the need in cultivating a good relationship with him. This further supports the idea that Bismarck was on borrowed time, and that once Wilhelm passed away in 10 or 20 years, whatever it was, Bismarck did not intend on sticking around in Frederick's liberal ministry. By now, King Wilhelm was 66, and there was no indication that he would live till his 91st birthday. A betting man would have advised Bismarck not to place all his eggs in Wilhelm's basket, but Bismarck simply found it too difficult to invest much energy or patience or enthusiasm in bettering his relationship with Frederick. He already had reason to dislike the crown prince, after all, was the crown prince not beholden to his dominant wife, Victoria Jr.? Was Frederick not a weak-willed man who followed the instructions of his wife? Bismarck's experience of his own childhood comes to the fore here, because he had, after all, seen what it was like to grow up with a strong but cold mother and a kind, loving but weak-willed father. Perhaps, having seen his own parents, 
relationship dynamic and loathing it as he did, he saw it and loathed it in others. It's debatable whether Frederick was as beholden to Victoria Jr.'s wishes as Bismarck claims, but this is the version of history which is generally handed down to us. By virtue of the fact that, in the long run at least, they lost the battle with Bismarck, both Frederick and Victoria Jr. are often lambasted by the histories. We don't have much time to go into the kind of people they actually were, but certainly it's fair to say that if Frederick hadn't died after only 100 days on the throne in 1888 from throat cancer, Germany and Europe and the world today would be very different indeed. As it was, though, instead, the crown passed to Wilhelm's grandson, Wilhelm II, and we all know how that turned out. Because Bismarck believed he didn't have very much to lose where Frederick was concerned, he remained defiant and stringently supported Wilhelm's point of view, but not to the point of sponsoring a rift between father and son. That would have been going too far. By August, Bismarck was holidaying in Bad Gastein, a spa resort. For the record, bad just means spa. It doesn't mean that it was bad, so don't go thinking Bad Gastein was a nasty place to go to. It was not. In fact, it was one of the busiest and most lucrative spa towns at the time. In an era when going to such a spa and taking in these fresh mineral waters was considered one of the best ways for the aristocracy to relax and heal up after working tirelessly in the city. While he was at Bad Gastein, Frederick visited Bismarck, and in fact, he apologised. Bismarck was caught in the middle, and he recounted the meeting with Frederick in his memoirs, saying... In August, the Crown Prince paid me a visit at Gastein. There, less under the sway of English influences, he spoke of his conduct like one conscious of a native want of independence and full of veneration for his father. Monestly and gracefully, he traced his error to its source in his imperfect political training and aloofness from affairs. In short, he used the unreserved language of one who sees that he has done wrong and seeks to excuse himself on the score of the influences under which he had lain. Well, that was easy, so it seems. Bismarck had emerged on the other side of this family feud, having played the role of family counsellor, or at least an unattached mediator, who was more interested in seeing the relationship between prince and king patched up than trying to angle for an advantage for himself. We also have to remember, of course, that Wilhelm, at the end of the day, was the fount of Bismarck's power, and by staying loyal to him in a situation like this, Bismarck was making it very plain indeed to Wilhelm that all of his eggs were in the king's basket. He didn't go as far as saying this, but demonstrating that he had no interest in pandering to Frederick, even though Frederick would one day wear the crown, would have sent a clear message to the king. It's also worth considering that by appearing useful and loyal to the king during a time when he was enduring a terrible fight with his son, Bismarck appeared like the son Wilhelm never had. In fact, you could even argue that the more conservative, traditional Wilhelm saw eye-to-eye more with Bismarck than his liberal, English-influenced son. Although he didn't try and make the situation worse through intrigue or scheming or the like, it'd be hard to deny that Bismarck didn't gain some measure of kudos from the king for sticking by his side. By September as well, it became clear that the conflict between father and son had not been wholly resolved. Frederick was back under the influences of his evil English queen and he became surrounded by liberal German statesmen who parroted the same views and represented little more than yes-men in Bismarck's mind. 
The Liberals were rallying behind Prince Frederick with good reason. They saw in him their saviour. The sovereign who would move Prussia forward into a liberal age, beyond the times when the likes of Bismarck, or Bismarck's reactionary, conservative, militarist peers, could hold any kind of influence in Prussia. Prussia was moving forward. It was moving into a new era, and it was modernising itself. And Bismarck would be left behind, these liberals surely assumed, once this change was made. All that had to happen was for Wilhelm to pass away. On the 3rd of September 1863, Prince Frederick wrote to his father, making his stance very, very clear. A momentous decision was yesterday taken in the council. In the presence of the ministers, I would not in any way oppose His Majesty. Today I have done so. I have expressed my views. I have set forth my grave apprehensions as to the future. The king now knows that I am the determined foe of the ministry. The determined foe of the ministry? Didn't it seem for a time like the king and the prince were getting on better terms? What had happened to sour their relationship once again? It wasn't actually as simple a case as Frederick coming under evil influences, though Bismarck certainly would have liked to claim so. In fact, the real incident which ruined the relationship between king and prince was the fact that Bismarck had once again suspended the land tag in early September. And by doing so, Bismarck had cast to the wind all of those liberal deputies who Frederick was increasingly seeing eye to eye with. In short, Bismarck had acted against Frederick's friends. And because Bismarck acted with the king's approval, it wasn't difficult to be angry at the king at the same time as being angry at his minister-president. On the 6th of September, Bismarck met with Frederick once again. Unlike their previous meeting in August, this time there was no admission of guilt or wrongdoing on Frederick's part. Instead, the meeting was restrained, but oh boy, was it awkward. Bismarck covers it in his memoirs, writing, I asked Frederick why he held so aloof from the government. In a few years he would be its master, and if his principles were not ours, he should rather endeavour to affect a gradual transition than throw himself into the opposition. That suggestion he decisively rejected, apparently suspecting me of a desire to pave the way for my transfer into his service. The refusal was accompanied by a hostile expression of Olympian disdain, which after all these years I have not forgotten. Today I still see before me the averted head, the flushed face and the glance cast over the left shoulder. I suppressed my own rising colour, and answered that my words had been prompted by an access of dynastic sentiment in the hope of restoring him to closer relations with his father, in the interest, alike, of the country and the dynasty which estrangement prejudiced. That in June I had done what I could to induce his father to decide nothing in wrath, because in the interest of the country and in view of the struggle with the Parliament, I wished to preserve harmony within the royal family. I said that I was a loyal servant of his father, and desired that on his accession to the throne, he might find, to supply in my place, servants as loyal to him as I had been to his father. I hoped he would dismiss the idea that I aimed at some day becoming his minister, and that I would never be. His wrath fell as suddenly as it had risen, and he concluded the conversation in a friendly tone. Bismarck makes a great effort to emphasise how disinterested he was in sticking around for Frederick's reign. This reflects what we know about Bismarck's views, but we also see an element of his self-destructive behaviour here. 
Maybe Bismarck was somewhat relieved that he didn't have to restrain himself, since he knew he had nothing to lose when it came to Frederick. Of course, we know that Bismarck did in fact stick around, and that it wasn't until Wilhelm's grandson kicked him out that he left his position. It's also interesting to compare Bismarck's claim to only want a short duration as the minister-president to what actually happened. Bismarck would stay on through the regimes of Frederick and a few years of Wilhelm II, and he'd only be forced out by that same Wilhelm II. Contrary to what he might claim here then, it seems as though Bismarck wanted to hold on to power as long as possible. But let's not forget, Bismarck in 1863 was very different to Bismarck in 1888. Those 25 years in between made a world of difference to how Bismarck saw, well, the world, and also his role within it. In 1863, he was a minister, he was the leader of the government, he was determined to make great changes. By 1888, he was more convinced than ever before that he was the only one capable of directing Prussian interests now, and that anyone else would drop the ball, to the detriment of Prussia's interests in Germany and to German interests in Europe. To an extent, he was correct. But that's a debate for another day. This royal dispute provides an interesting interlude into the diplomacy and to the different crises that Bismarck would bounce in between. It shows how flawed the royal family was, but it also showed how Bismarck was willing to take advantage of certain situations. By far the most important thing it reveals, though, is how important Bismarck believed Wilhelm was to his prospects. If Wilhelm was replaced, if he died then Bismarck would have no power base from which to operate. Now that Wilhelm was here, it was imperative that Bismarck make sure Wilhelm know how loyal his subject was, and how desperate his subject was to serve him. The question of royal succession was always relevant during Wilhelm's reign, but Frederick, to his credit, was not content with the idea of his father abdicating and he getting the throne prematurely. On that score, at least, the king and the prince saw eye to eye. But Bismarck seems to have done his level best to pit the son against the father, at least insofar as he sided definitively with the king and seems to have wrote the prince off for his liberally naive ideas. Did Bismarck make the relationship between king and prince worse, or was it always destined to be strained, judging from what we know by Prussian dynastic history? Certainly the record of Prussian kings and their sons didn't exactly paint a particularly optimistic picture when it came to the relations between father and son. But to summarise this crisis, the standoff between Frederick and Wilhelm over the course of the summer of 1863 had the result of showing us just how important Bismarck believed Wilhelm was to him. This royal dispute served Bismarck as a kind of warm-up for what would happen later. There was certainly an element of foreshadowing in this as well, because Bismarck stuck doggedly to the king's position. Not because he was particularly loyal or caring for the king deep down, in spite of what he might claim, but because he recognised that Wilhelm was the one figure in Prussia that could make or break his career. What happens, though, when the subject is forced to break the master? What would happen if Bismarck and Wilhelm fundamentally disagreed on how to proceed next? Up to this point, at least, they had disagreed and had a few spats, but at his core, Wilhelm was a conservative and wanted to see Prussia increase its army size and for the liberals to be taken down a peg. Bismarck was certainly on board with this, although he was determined to do it in his own way. But the occasion for the disagreement between king and subject 
came at long last, thanks to those liberal initiatives that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode that were launched by the Austrians. Resolving the issues with his son was an important mission for sure for King Wilhelm, but another important mission was to finally come to terms with the Austrian Emperor and clear the air over any difficulties which might still be lingering following the Alvensleben Convention and the Iron and Blood speech. It was important to keep Austria on good terms, particularly for a traditionalist like King Wilhelm, who at this stage, of course, had no notion of the kind of changes which were about to come underway within Germany. For a long time, Wilhelm had waited to meet with the Austrian Emperor, and now, following his liberal initiative to unite all of Germany under this new German confederation, Franz Josef finally had a good reason to travel to Bad Gastein and meet with the King of Prussia. It was while there, on the 2nd of August 1863, that Franz Josef and King Wilhelm had a long conversation, during the course of which they laid out the plan for reimagining the German Confederation. The Austrians would retain a presidency, but there would be an upper tier of five German states, with Prussia certainly included. Wilhelm, almost despite himself, was charmed and smitten to a degree with the idea that he was important enough for the Emperor of Austria to meet him in person. But to his credit at the same time, he didn't give Franz Josef a clear answer. For the moment at least, he said he'd have to think about it. Very well, said Franz Josef, but don't leave me hanging too long. Because by the middle of the month, I hope to have all of the major potentates in Germany gathered in the city of Frankfurt. The same city of Frankfurt, where a decade or so earlier, Bismarck had first arrived and made his name on the world stage. It seemed as though it was almost poetic. Everything was returning to Frankfurt. Would Bismarck go? Absolutely not. To Bismarck, this Congress of Princes idea was like a wolf in sheep's clothing. It was Austria's attempt to achieve dominance over all of Germany. And if the Prussian king blindly, willingly walked into this trap, there was only so much Bismarck could do. But he was determined to make his king see just how dangerous, just how insulting the whole thing was. Unusually for Bismarck, he had actually not been present when the king and Franz Josef had had their talk. He had been exploring the countryside, exploring the surroundings of Bad Gastein, and he took detailed notes on all the beautiful pieces of nature he had seen. It was almost like the calm before the storm, because as soon as he met with his king afterwards and realised what had gone down, Bismarck launched into politician mode. Bismarck began to follow, for lack of a better term, a campaign of serious pressure, intimidation and manipulation against the king, who was himself torn about the best way to proceed, and because he was torn, Bismarck was sure he would be receptive to the points he was making. But just to be sure, Bismarck hammered them home even more ruthlessly and relentlessly than normal. In Bismarck's defence, this was supposed to be his job. He was supposed to look out for the king's interest and for the kingdom of Prussia's interests as well. He had only gone to Bad Gastein in the first place because Wilhelm had asked him to, because Wilhelm had wanted Bismarck around when he had talked to the Austrian emperor. Bismarck missed this meeting, but he was not going to miss the chance to torpedo the Austrian emperor's scheme to bypass Prussia's right to rule. Only a few weeks before, Bismarck had been complaining of the need for a holiday. He was, after only a few months as minister-president, already feeling the strain. 
The king absolutely refused to hear hints that I might go away. I don't want to upset him. He wants me here when the Austrian emperor arrives any day now, but he fears that contact with me will upset the Western powers and affront the liberals. Bismarck wrote this to Rune only a few days before Wilhelm and Franz Josef had their conversation. But even from this, we can deduce that Bismarck's reputation was fearsome indeed. If merely meeting with his minister-president was enough to affront the liberals, Bismarck must have established a serious reputation for himself at this point. Traversing the Iron and Blood and Aldenslieben Convention controversies had left him with a mixed reputation, but few could argue that there was any mixing or confusion about where Bismarck stood on the whole Austrian issue. And after having talked with his king, Franz Josef had just pushed this Austrian issue to the forefront of Bismarck's mind. If Prussia went along with this Austrian idea, if Prussia kowtowed to Austria, if she accepted the restrictions on her power, there'd be no benefit to Prussia. What would Prussia gain from empowering the German Confederation? What would she gain by accepting Austria's presidency of it? Austria, to her credit, would gain the loyalty and the support of a whole load of German princes, who would surely follow along with her own policy line. Bismarck could not allow Austria to peacefully unite Germany behind her flag. This would have been seriously detrimental to Prussia's interests. She would have been indefinitely hemmed in by the score of different German states that were now loyal to Vienna. Bismarck also made a point of emphasising to his king the very fact that Vienna's presumptions of Prussian inferiority, the very fact that Franz Josef believed he was entitled to summon the Prussian king, that he believed he was at the head of this German arrangement, showed that Austria did not care for Prussia's honour. It showed that Austria disrespected Prussia. And it showed that Vienna didn't care for Berlin's legacy or for her traditions. Bismarck tried his very best to emphasise all these points and more to his king, but Wilhelm was still indecisive. He loathed the idea of peeving every German potentate, which he surely would do if he just did not show up at this great gathering of princes. We should reiterate the point that, in a scenario in which Vienna establishes total control over a German confederation, whereas before her control was only vaguely defined, this would have been very detrimental indeed to Prussia's interests, and if the Prussian king had gone along to Frankfurt as Franz Josef desired, then we would be talking about a very different German unification than the one which actually happened. Bismarck perceived the Congress of Princes as only the latest attempt by Austria to reassert its dominance, and this interpretation, it seems, was mostly correct. It also has to be said that it was by no means unusual for a minister-president to disagree with his king, what was different about Bismarck, of course, was his means, the way in which he went about trying to persuade his king, trying to convince him to see things his way. To take the British example, Benjamin Disraeli and William Gladstone as British Prime Ministers never would have launched the kind of pressure, or intimidation or manipulation campaign that Bismarck launched. And according to the constitution of each country, the Prussian king was supposed to have more prerogatives, more powers than the civilians. And yet here was a civilian, here was Bismarck wielding more power, so it seemed, than the king himself. Prussia's political system enabled a character like Bismarck to act as he did, but it should go without saying that the circumstances alone were not enough to ensure a Bismarck arrived. Bismarck's character contained just the right amount of each trait. Energetic, intelligent and ambitious, 
He was also confident and in this situation, brave. Bismarck was standing against what seemed at least the tide of public opinion. Some in Germany must have expected that the unification of their whole nation state under Vienna was imminent and that by the end of the year some arrangement would be in place to help this happen. That Bismarck was standing against this idea meant that he was standing against the dreams of German nationalists who of course couldn't know that within a few years Bismarck would launch his own bid for German unification albeit through war rather than a congress of princes. We also have to emphasise that Bismarck wasn't getting off scot-free by doing all this. It was of course impressive to watch him work and to watch him exude power and confidence and to use his massive resources of energy to get his way. There's something almost alluring about watching a specialist go to work in this respect, but it has to be added that such acts made Bismarck seriously unwell. Now a lot of this could be down to Bismarck's self-confessed hypochondria. A great deal of the illnesses Bismarck complained of could well have been self-inflicted or exaggerated. But it should go without saying that being the party of one that's standing against this seriously intimidating tide which all of the country seemed to be riding on would have meant a lot of pressure for any Prime Minister with even the best constitution, which Bismarck did not, at least, seem to have. We're pulled towards another question then. If this process of opposing the king and opposing the liberals, etc. to get what he wanted was so harmful to Bismarck's health, then why did he insist on behaving in this way? Once Bismarck got an idea in his mind and once he had a policy to pursue, all sense of gentleness, any idea of letting matters go or simply of holding the king in reverence and doing what he said, all of this went out the window. Bismarck became that bull in the china shop which, through sheer force of personality and unrelenting doggedness, made Wilhelm see that to attend the Congress of Princes was the wrong call and that he should decline. That was the short version. The long version of the story was much more miserable for Wilhelm. Bismarck was quite detailed in his memoirs about why he acted the way he did, but he was largely silent on how he managed to make Wilhelm see things his way. In other words, he felt compelled to explain why he had to persuade his king, but Bismarck doesn't reveal the methods that he used to persuade him. Bismarck noted that Wilhelm did not instantly feel the slight implied by this sudden attack, by this invitation, we might almost say by this summons. And he added that Wilhelm probably favoured the Austrian proposal because it contained an element of royal solidarity in the struggle against parliamentary liberalism, by which he himself was just then hard-pressed at Berlin. But Bismarck wasn't just fighting against the king's intransigence or against the Austrian emperor's ambitions, he was also fighting against the opinions of Prussia's spread-out royal family, many of whom were based in other German states and who had grand ideas about how Germany would be unified and how great it would be if Austria took that initiative. One of these figures was Elizabeth of Baden, who was King Wilhelm's sister. In conversations with Wilhelm's sister, Bismarck said that he confessed to her, If the king does not otherwise decide, I will go and perform his business in Frankfurt, but I will not return as minister to Berlin. This prospect seemed to disturb the queen, and she ceased to contest my views with the king. Elizabeth of Baden, like so many other German potentates, liked the idea of German unity, which was soon to be displayed in Frankfurt. 
She urged her brother Wilhelm to attend, but she wasn't safe from Bismarck's style either. This brings us back to the point of who Bismarck thought he was. Sure, he was the minister-president, but how much confidence and self-assurance did he have to have to speak to a royal in this way? Individuals like Elizabeth of Baden or Wilhelm or Franz Josef were in the top tier of society. They were the elites. And even for a noble to speak to a king in this way, for a noble to speak to a monarch or a queen or prince or any other kind of royal family member would have represented a scandal. And yet Bismarck somehow got away with it. And it was perhaps because he showed no fear, because he showed very little restraint in many respects, and because he single-mindedly pursued his goal of getting the king to refuse the summons, that many of the people in his way simply felt overwhelmed and backed down. It's also interesting to see in Bismarck here a tactic which he would use many times again throughout his chancellorship, the threat to resign. By claiming that he would not return to Berlin and serve as the king's minister-president if Wilhelm did insist on going to Frankfurt, Bismarck was laying down the gauntlet for the king. The king now knew that if he went against what Bismarck wanted, he would be returning to Berlin after the event with one less politician to worry about. What is remarkable about this threat to resign was the fact that over the course of his chancellorship, from 1862 to 1890 essentially, Bismarck used this threat an awful lot, and Wilhelm seems to have believed him. Or at the very least, even if he didn't completely believe him, he wasn't willing to take the risk. Bad as his tactics were in this respect, and inconsiderate and cruel though he could be, Bismarck explains and almost justifies himself in his memoirs, writing, Had I dropped my resistance to the king's efforts to go to Frankfurt, and, according to his wish, accompanied him thither in order during the Congress, to convert the rivalry of Austria and Prussia into a common warfare against revolution and constitutionalism, Prussia would have remained outwardly what she was before. Under the presidency of Austria, she would, no doubt, by means of federal decisions, have been able to get her constitution revised, in the same way as happened with those of Hanover, Hesse and Mecklenburg, at Lipp, Hamburg and Luxembourg, but would thereby have closed the road to German nationality. Evidently, Bismarck knew there was more at stake here than liberalism versus conservatism. It wasn't as simple as King Wilhelm going to Frankfurt and showing solidarity with his brother monarch in the face of a liberal tide which only the two most conservative pillars of Germany could resist. This was not at all what Wilhelm should be doing, Bismarck insisted, because all it would do would be to return Prussia outwardly to what she was before. And by that, Bismarck meant Prussia would become little more than an Austrian vassal. And Bismarck knew that he was onto something. He already had a reputation as a leader of the unofficial anti-Austrian league, but Emperor Franz Josef wasn't willing to give up without a fight as if to drive home the fact that Wilhelm would be attending with his brother monarchs in Frankfurt, Franz Josef authorised King John of Saxony to visit Wilhelm and to pressure him from the other side of the argument. After all, for the last few weeks, Wilhelm's head had been filled with reasons of why he should not go. Maybe it was time to send someone to Wilhelm who could put steel into him and remind him why it was good that he should go. The decision to send King John of Saxony must be considered Franz Josef's secret weapon. But Bismarck was unperturbed. He stuck to his course, and he writes the following in his memoirs. By the time we reached Baden, I thought I had convinced my master, 
but there we found the King of Saxony, who was commissioned by all the princes to renew the invitation to Frankfurt. My master did not find it easy to resist that move. He reflected over and over again. Thirty reigning princes and a king to take their messages. Besides, he loved and honoured the King of Saxony, who, moreover of all the princes, had personally most vocation for such a mission. Not until midnight did I succeed in obtaining the king's signature to a refusal to the King of Saxony. When I left my master, both he and I were ill and exhausted by the nervous tension of the situation, and my subsequent verbal communication with the Saxon minister, von Beust, bore the stamp of this agitation. But the crisis was overcome, and the King of Saxony departed without, as I had feared, visiting my master again. Bismarck tells this story with a strangely cold detachment from it all, but we know from sources on the other side of the argument that what happened was anything but clean, and seemed at the time to be anything but well-intentioned. Certainly Bismarck seemed happy here to underrate the tension, and to underrate just how awful his behaviour had been, not just towards the king, but also towards the Saxon minister, von Beust. We'll examine the details of that bust-up in a little bit, but first, let's consider Wilhelm and Bismarck. Wilhelm surely must have been wondering what he'd gotten himself into by appointing this minister-president in the first place. We have to imagine that throughout Bismarck's pressure campaign during this crisis, Wilhelm would have wanted to tell him where to go. He would have wanted to tell Bismarck that he was the king, he would do what he wanted, and that was that. He would have been greeted, of course, with a careful, but probably not quite respectful, opposition from his minister-president, who would pull out all the stops in trying to point out to the king why it was so important that he did not attend. The king was supposed to make the policy, and the minister-president was supposed to follow the lead, and that was clearly not happening here. Since Wilhelm obviously hated being treated like this, we could be forgiven for wondering why he put up with Bismarck, and why he never attempted to fire him after the initial blood and iron debacle passed over. Was Wilhelm a glutton for punishment, or was he just convinced of Bismarck's value, in spite of everything? This was before Bismarck had ever achieved any real serious coup. That coup would come later on, and then Bismarck's position would be even more secure. But for now, while he couldn't rely on any great triumphs, Bismarck had to use all the means at his disposal to hold on to his position and simultaneously try to persuade the king that his own position was wrong. But all this seemed to be for naught, because after resisting him for some time, Wilhelm finally capitulated, not to Bismarck, but to King John of Saxony. He would go to Frankfurt, as requested by Franz Josef, and he looked forward to when he could see King John of Saxony again. At this, Bismarck pulled out all the stops. His trump card was the army issue. Because the army would be under Austria and under the German Confederation, this would mean that Prussia's independence and her legacy as a militarist state would be destroyed. Could Wilhelm, as the head of this army, really allow this to happen? Could he watch as his beloved army was trampled underfoot by ignorant and uninformed Austrians? Surely as a military figure, Wilhelm wouldn't want to be the king responsible for destroying the legacy of Frederick the Great. This was how intensely and how ferociously Bismarck fought back. And if Wilhelm hadn't been expecting it, he didn't object. Instead, he simply crumpled. Don't you see, your majesty, how I wish to protect you from harm? Was what Bismarck seemed to be saying in effect. But the way in which he got this message across 
was anything but harmless. This brings us to a scene where Wilhelm was stretched out on a sofa, exhausted, and following this final salvo where Bismarck had pulled every lever to persuade his king not to go for it, Wilhelm burst into tears, and he gave in to the Iron Chancellor. He promised Bismarck he wouldn't go to Frankfurt for the sake of protecting Prussian prestige and his army. Bismarck had done it. He had managed to overcome the enthusiasm of the king, the pressure campaign of King John of Saxony, and the ambitions of Emperor Franz Josef. He had balanced several monarchs off one another, and he, the mere civilian, had come out the other side. In a state of nervous excitement while Bismarck was leaving the king's room, he pulled the door handle off of the door, and later, when he returned to his bedroom, smashed a jug and himself burst into tears. The conversation with the king had taken three hours, and I don't know if you've ever had to focus on something for three hours straight, like your whole career and life and ideology depended on it, but after Bismarck had done so, he was the equivalent of a nervous wreck. But unfortunately for him, and unfortunately for everyone still in his way, Bismarck's night was not yet finished. He had persuaded the king not to go to Frankfurt, but von Beust, the Saxon minister, and the king of Saxony were still in Baden, and were under the impression that the king was going to go. So with the clock nearing midnight on the 19th of August 1863, Bismarck rushed to meet von Beust and tell him what had happened. Bismarck was still a ball of nervous energy, and after putting up with the king for so long, and bending him to his will, was in no mood to suffer any fools or any opposite opinions. He insisted to von Beust that both von Beust and the King of Saxony were trying to ruin Prussia. Bismarck comes across as somewhat hysterical in this case, but perhaps it was all an act, perhaps it was all an attempt to disarm von Beust and do in the space of a few minutes what he had done to his king in three hours, persuade him that there was no way the King of Prussia would attend. On the other hand, it's more likely that Bismarck was close to hysterical at this point. Boist tried to calm him. Maybe Wilhelm needed more time to think. So, King John of Saxony would stick around in that case, to talk to Wilhelm as necessary. Von Boist seemed to have found the solution himself. This mission wasn't over, and King John could stay for as long as was necessary. If Von Boist expected Bismarck to respond positively to this, then what happened next must have taken him utterly by surprise. According to Von Boist's memoirs, Bismarck held nothing back, proclaiming, I swear to you that if the special train with King John has not left by six tomorrow morning, then by eight o'clock a Prussian battalion will move into Baden from Rastatt, and before my king is out of bed, King John's house will be surrounded by troops with only one order, that no Saxon should be admitted. We can do our best to imagine von Boyce's reaction at this. He couldn't believe his ears but he did stand firm in the face of this towering Junker. Prussia had no right to march troops into Baden in peacetime. This would be a breach of the peace and a breach of Confederate law. And imagine the scandal if Prussian soldiers held the King of Saxony hostage. Surely Bismarck couldn't be serious. If he wasn't serious, if he didn't mean this deep down, then Bismarck was certainly pulling off a great act. According to Boist, Bismarck replied, Breaches of law and the peace are matters of perfect indifference to me. All I care for is the well-being of my king and my country. Today you have made my king quite ill. Tomorrow he must have rest. 
Was Bismarck serious or was he bluffing? It certainly seems as though he was serious. And this is palpable in the numerous reports and numerous claims that he had made to several people who were in attendance in Baden that if the king did go to Frankfurt, then he would resign. He had already told Elizabeth of Baden this, and he continued to tell several Saxon ministers who were attached to the Saxon entourage, of which von Beust was the head. It's easy to imagine that Bismarck was serious about resigning, mostly because if this policy did go through, if King Wilhelm did go to Frankfurt, and if Austrian presidency over the German Confederation, a new, reimagined, empowered German Confederation, was assured, then Bismarck's life's work would essentially have crumbled into his hands. He could, in that situation, do very little. So it would have been best to resign rather than bang his head against the wall in an attempt to rectify the situation which his own king had caused. Since the success of the Congress of Princes would have represented a catastrophe unparalleled in Bismarck's career, I do believe he was serious when he threatens to resign, at least in this scenario. Whether or not he was serious about resigning when he threatened to do so later on for the umpteenth time is another issue. But what about the threat to make war? Would Bismarck really have marched soldiers into Baden and held the King of Saxony essentially hostage? This is harder to gauge, but considering the way in which Bismarck would use and manipulate war to his own ends, it is at least possible that he would have gone this far. Consider in Bismarck's mind what was on the line here. The success of the Congress of Princes, as we said, would have represented the torpedoing of all of Bismarck's life work. It would have represented the supremacy of Austria. And this supremacy would have been protected by a series of treaties and laws which all Germans would have to abide by, including Prussia. Essentially, Bismarck had little to lose by threatening war. And he had little to lose as well by making war. Because in a situation like this, where Austria was about to regain control over Germany through several treaties and through the acknowledgement of the different German princes, what was the difference between that state of affairs, where Austria dominated, or the state of affairs which would have followed when Prussia attacked a German member and then was overwhelmed by the other German members? Bismarck's option was far more dramatic, but the end result would have been the same. The alienation of Prussia from its true ambitions and potential. This was something Bismarck could not allow, and when it came down to matters of life and death for a state, he believed that all the stops should be pulled out, and nothing should be left to chance. There was no policy which went too far, so long as the very future of Prussia in Germany was at stake. And Prussia was, to a certain degree, fortunate to have Bismarck in this position. Because as we said, if this had all gone according to plan for Franz Josef, Austria would have been in a very different position which she was in in 1866. Edward Crankshaw asks the question, what sort of man behaved like this? And what sort of man accused the king of being on the verge of high treason against the state and himself? What sort of man did this kind of thing? The fact is, Bismarck did it, and he got away with it. And he got away with it to such an extent that this whole episode is often forgotten in the grand scheme of things. But it was absolutely essential in explaining how Bismarck and the king cooperated for the next 20-something years. Bismarck went the extra mile no matter what it cost him. When Prussia was at stake, and when his position as head of Prussia's government was also at stake, Bismarck was not about to allow petty Germans to get into his way. And he was exceptional in this regard, that he didn't back down from the challenge. 
He showed his value to Wilhelm, especially in retrospect, when Wilhelm must have looked back on an incident like this in 1871 when the German Empire was proclaimed and he was made its Kaiser. Only someone with the confidence, with the energy and with the ability, through his own intelligence, to manipulate a situation like this to his own advantage, could Bismarck get his way. But he did more than simply get his way. He instilled within the king a kind of reverence for his minister-president, which never truly went away. In the Congress of Princes idea, then, we see not just a watershed moment in the history of German unity, as the Austrians would never try and do this again, we also see a transformation in the relationship between Bismarck and King. Henceforth, Wilhelm would effectively compromise his absolutist rights. In return for the support and direction of a minister, who at times, we imagine, must have terrified him completely. Yet even though he was terrifying, Bismarck was so in control of the situation, there was virtually no way to refuse him. He had broken his king's will once more. It would be relatively straightforward for him to do so again, and he would do so again. It didn't sound like a healthy relationship, but it was certainly effective while it lasted. And even though it made Bismarck ill, and it certainly can't have made the king all that happy, both men would be propelled to new heights of fame, glory and power because of this utterly toxic relationship. If not for that toxic relationship, neither Bismarck nor Prussia could have done what they did. I believe Jonathan Steinberg describes the course and significance of this event best in his biography of Bismarck, where he writes, This struggle for the king's soul in August 1863 made Bismarck's subsequent career possible. He persuaded or forced the king of Prussia to refuse an invitation which every fibre in his long royal frame told him to accept. The intense emotions which both experienced during the confrontation and tears on exhaustion afterwards suggest that profound struggle, not unlike that between a father and son, took place between the king and Bismarck over the Frankfurt Congress of Princes. Bismarck prevailed because the king must have felt in the depth of his soul that this impossible Bismarck mattered to him. He could not do without him. If Bismarck had failed then, he could not have remained as minister. In this crucial confrontation, the ultimate fate of Germany rested on the mysterious power of Bismarck's sovereign self, and on no other, not office, not command of armies, not prestige. Had Bismarck resigned then because the king felt a duty to attend the Congress of Princes, the history of Germany and the world would have run a very different course. It is for this reason that we've spent so much time examining it, folks. Unless we understand this Congress of Princes idea, unless we see it in its proper context, we'll never understand how Bismarck managed to achieve all that he did. I've said this before and I'll say it again, because he was the party of one, because he lacked any political party to call his own, and he certainly lacked any political support, Bismarck was utterly dependent on the king. If the king withdrew his support of his formidable minister-president, there would be little for Bismarck to do but resign. That this didn't happen shows that the Congress of Princes was something of a testing ground for Bismarck's ministry and for his control over the country itself. He also emerges from the crisis more in command than ever before. By virtue of his more total command on the king, Bismarck would be less fearful when it came to tackling matters in the Prussian government. 
The event had empowered Bismarck, essentially, and it granted him even more confidence, because it showed him that at the end of the day, if he wanted to, he could break the king's will and force the king to see things his way. We might be tempted in a situation like this to feel a little bit sorry for Franz Josef, the man who had proposed this Congress of Princes idea, and had no idea that it would cause so much controversy and so much anguish between king and minister. Or did he? It's important, on the one hand, not to underrate Bismarck's awfulness at times, but let's not forget that he shared the stage with people who were, themselves, very much self-interested and looking out for number one. In this case, Franz Josef had a clear interest in wanting to see Vienna supreme in Germany. The Congress of Princes was his latest scheme to achieve this, after having failed, through the use of force several times, to get the control over the German Confederation that Vienna desired. The German Confederation had never been incepted for the purpose of Austrian domination of Germany. It had been designed to keep control over Germany and to keep it somewhat united, with a vague notion of Austrian control within there. But as Bismarck had showed during his posting to Frankfurt, Austrian control over all the Germanies was by no means total, nor was it taken for granted that if Austria moved, other German princes would move with her. Indeed, it should be added that foreign observers saw through Franz Josef's scheme here. They saw through the Emperor's initiative to gather all of the powers of Germany in her hands, and to answer the question of whether it would be Prussia or Austria definitively, and through a unexpected back channel. If it had worked, it would have been seen as a diplomatic coup by the Austrian Emperor, but the fact that it did not work means that we're now talking about the Congress of Princes as the final attempt by the Austrian Emperor to contest the future of Germany with Prussia. The next time this question will be up for debate, it will be answered in a far bloodier, gorier, more terrible manner. But, but, it will be answered in Prussia's favour. As I said, many foreign observers were able to see through what Franz Josef was all about. This wasn't a benevolent attempt to unite all the Germanies together. It was a power play at the end of the day, and it was a power play which would have massively benefited Austria and really increased her stock in the world. One of those people who saw through Franz Josef's scheme was the American Consul General in Frankfurt, William Walton Murphy, who reported to the Secretary of State back in Washington under Lincoln's administration. We might imagine that the United States at this point would be somewhat preoccupied with the fact that they were tearing themselves apart in the Civil War, but interestingly, William Walton Murphy had the time to make these fascinating observations. I always love getting perspectives like these from people who we might assume would be too far removed from a city like Frankfurt to understand its inner workings or to really get to grips with what was at stake. Well, William Walton Murphy managed to get to grips with all this and more. The following extract is quite long, but I believe it's important and worthwhile sharing it with you because of the perspective it provides us and because it places a nice handy bow on all that has just transpired. On the 16th of August 1863, before Bismarck had launched his final ruthless persuasion campaign against King Wilhelm, that is, William Walton Murphy wrote the following. It is evident that the Emperor of Austria, upon the advice of his ministers, took this step to avail himself of the present dissatisfaction and excited feeling prevailing among the Germans, and especially of the unfortunate state of affairs in Prussia, to secure for himself the leadership over the German fatherland. 
To avoid, however, the appearance of such an endeavour, the Emperor went in person to Gastein to invite his great rival and competitor for that supremacy, the King of Prussia, who at present resides there for the restoration of his health. At what he chiefly aimed for by that visit has been completely attained, for all his sovereign colleagues have accepted the invitation, with the only exception of the King of Prussia. This monarch is, as is universally known, entirely dependent upon the influence and advice of his Prime Minister, Count Bismarck. The latter, however, knows not only that his selfish and autocratic ideas are completely negatived by the designs of the intended Congress of Princes, but not to mention the circumstance that he is the most disliked diplomatist in Germany and would no doubt very unfavourably be received by the mass of the peoples. He is also, for his own maintenance's sake, necessitated to keep his crowned master as distant as possible from the intercourse and advice of the more liberal princes, who might infect him by their progressive and timely ideas to his, the minister's, own ruin. The king, therefore, who is closely watched by his demon-like adviser, at first wanted time to reflect upon the matter, then wanted the congress to be delayed until a fixed plan for its proceedings had been jointly prepared by the different ministers, and when informed that this was infeasible, as the invitations had been sent already to the different courts, made his low state of health the excuse for his refusal. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. To partake. The emperor, however, did not give up, but desired the king, as a last trial of goodwill, in that case to be represented by one of the royal princes, but all in vain, the king now flatly declining any participation, notwithstanding the universal opposition and warning of the German people, and even of the reactionary part of the Prussian newspapers, which ventured openly to declare such a decision not only selfish and imprudent, but even a paltry and foolish act. As to the character of the princely congress, the necessity of its being held alone, shows that the German rulers feel that they have arrived at a point where they either must please the people by some popular reform or movement, or they will lay at stake the last hold of the power and authority with which they are invested. So far advanced is the progressive, not to say revolutionary, spirit of the people 
that its rulers are actually frightened into the path of liberality. It's very interesting to note Murphy's initial impressions here, especially his comments on Bismarck being demon-like and being the most unpopular diplomatist in Germany. We would have good reason to believe Murphy's impressions here. Certainly Bismarck hadn't really done all that much to make people like him in the year or so since he'd been on the seat of Minister-President. But we also note that Murphy was perceptive enough to see in this Congress of Princes Franz Josef making a stab at becoming Emperor of all of Germany. Because Murphy was resident in Frankfurt, he was able to note a week later, on the 23rd of August, that etiquette had transformed the Congress of Princes not into a productive process of every German ruler sorting out their own problems and arriving at a system where Austria would be elevated to the very peak of this system, but instead to a morass of expensive social functions and dinners. Murphy describes in great detail the dinner habits, the furniture, the pomp and ceremony of all of these proceedings, and he notes that during the ceremonies, the Austrian Emperor Franz Josef was always at the top. He was always at the head of the Congress of Princes, which spoke to his desire to be head of any German federation or empire which was created. Prussia was notable in her absence, and in this absence, Franz Josef tried to fill the power vacuum. This was, as Murphy noted, a high point for the 33-year-old Emperor Franz Josef. With Wilhelm absent, though, the outcome of unifying all of Germany together was impossible, because he couldn't very well do so with the most important North German power out of the room. Those present in Frankfurt also commented on Prussia's absence. From the bottom of my soul, declared the King of Bavaria during the opening speeches of the Congress of Princes. I share your majesty's regret, as do also, no doubt, all our beloved colleagues, that we are not allowed to greet his majesty, the King of Prussia, here. Let us hope that at our next meeting this mighty link will not be lacking to complete the great chain of German power and grandeur, and let us not forget that we shall much promote the fulfilment of this hope by coming to speedy and unanimous resolution today. It's at this point that our story comes full circle in a sense, because it was at this point in the proceedings with the different German princes kind of awkwardly asking Franz Josef what the story with Prussia was, that Franz Josef decided to send his good friend, King John of Saxony, to find the King of Prussia in Baden and pressure him to come to this Congress of Princes. This led to the scene where King John of Saxony went to Baden and greeted Wilhelm, and tried to get him to, in King John of Saxony's mind at least, see sense and join this German tide that was enjoying such a groundswell of popularity at the time. But Bismarck had other ideas, of course, and after a three-hour conversation with the King of Prussia, it was obvious that King John of Saxony was not going to be successful. Following a volcanic meeting with von Beust, the Saxon minister, who was threatened with war if King John did not go back to where he came from, it became apparent that Prussia was not, after all, going to attend. Enthusiasm for the Congress of Princes was bound to wane once it became obvious that Prussia wasn't going to be there. There wasn't much point in going ahead with any agreements, and literally any agreements they made would have been void, because they wouldn't have had the agreement of every single German prince. They needed the Prussians there to legitimise this Congress of Princes. But thanks to Bismarck, this legitimacy would be lacking. It was still significant for all these princes to gather in one place, 
It was especially significant because this was to be the final opportunity the Austrians would have to remake Germany as a whole unit in their image. This would be the final effort the Austrians would make in the direction of making some kind of German composite state with an emperor of Austria at its head. Henceforth, the Austrians would pass this baton onto Prussia, but not willingly, of course, as we'll see. Although it was significant, Murphy had to note that little had been achieved or had been really changed. Everything remains the same as before, Murphy concluded on the Congress of Princes, adding, The Germans are still the Germans of the old stock, good-natured and slow as usual, and yet these people are rejoicing at some political demonstrations which have been made during this Congress. Those demonstrations would be simply ridiculous, were they not so foolish. Words, words, nothing but words. Action, manly action, is wanted. If manly action was, in fact, wanted, whatever manly action might be, Franz Josef was unwilling to bring it to bear. He allowed the Congress of Princes to lapse, and he didn't really exert any more pressure on the King of Prussia to attend. He accepted the defeat, so it would seem. Although it can't have been known at the time that this was bound to be his last effort in this direction. The debates in the Congress of Princes didn't achieve very much, but they did show the differences within the German states. The debates on liberalism in Germany showed that all these German states, predictably enough, were at very different stages when it came to giving their peoples more or fewer opportunities to express themselves in society. Some of these states even had restrictive censorship laws, such as the ones which Bismarck had brought into Prussia, and they could hardly go along with the liberal trend, so long as they were so obviously not in the liberal camp. It also had to be said that while these differences bubbled to the surface, Bismarck's decision to not attend seemed vindicated in a way, because if Prussia had attended, not only would she have been overwhelmed by some ill-fitting and badly-timed Austrian idea of German unity, but she also would have been caught up in these pointless debates, and Wilhelm would have been forced to watch as these petty German leaders rallied around to stop Prussia reaching her full potential. This, at least, was the message which Bismarck did his best to communicate to Wilhelm in the weeks after this Congress of Princes. He wanted to emphasise the idea which he had believed for a long time, that the so-called Gordian Knot of the German Confederation was better cut, as he put it, by the sword. Prussia would be made great by her own exploits, and not by the exploits of some 20-something German princes sitting in Frankfurt and making some high-minded declarations. Bismarck would use the dream of German unity not now, but in the future, when it suited him. Prussia, for Bismarck, was, and always would be, the main focus. It's at this point we have to ask if Bismarck was all that much of a German nationalist, a question which has been answered fairly conclusively in different places, but, to cut a long story short, it does seem that Bismarck was not particularly nationalistic when it came to the idea of German unity. We can see this in the cynical way that he promoted the idea, really only to suit his own ends, and once the German Empire was achieved, and all Germans were in one place, we don't see Bismarck going out of his way, really, to accommodate the other German peoples that had been brought in. His hostility towards the Saxons, towards the Bavarians, towards the Hanoverians, etc. didn't really slacken, and he seems to have used the German Empire idea mainly as a vehicle for furthering Prussian interests, which of course furthered his own interests. Notwithstanding these difficulties, though, 
It will be difficult for Prussia's image to stand so far aloof from the Congress of Princes without a good public excuse, even if that excuse was, clearly, just intended as window dressing. Bismarck had to find something, and he landed on a fairly familiar device, universal suffrage. Bismarck used the idea of universal suffrage before to undermine the Austrians, and he did it now again. On the 15th of September 1863, Bismarck declared that the moment had arrived to deal with the democratic question. Only by guaranteeing voting rights to the whole of the German nation, Bismarck declared, could Prussia's security also be guaranteed. And then, if this was done, Prussia would attend the Congress of Princes. Now, of course, Bismarck did not expect this demand to be agreed with, and it's likely that if it had been, and if he had been surprised, he still would have found some reason not to attend. We must wonder then why exactly Bismarck was putting forward this democratic idea in the first place, and the main reason which sticks out to us is that he was doing it to flummox the Austrians. If Prussia couldn't attend, and if she wanted to avoid the bad press, she had to extricate herself from the situation in a way that would make her look good, and the best way to do this would be to put the ball in someone else's court and make another German power loudly announce that the Congress of Princes couldn't go ahead because they couldn't agree with the direction it was going in. This is why this democratic idea was so important, and in a way quite clever, because Bismarck knew full well that while some German states, perhaps, could accept an idea of democracy and could accept the idea of giving their citizens the vote, the Austrians certainly could not. There was no way they could accommodate all their different nationalities and ethnicities and give them a vote when, in the early 1860s, Austrian power was precariously balanced between Hungarian, Austrian, Slavic and all sorts of other different nationalities. It's fair to say that the main thing keeping Austria together was its prestige and the idea that it couldn't be defeated at this very moment. But as we will see, these ideas and perceptions were soon to change. Once Austria was defeated in 1866, it didn't take the Hungarians very long to challenge the assumption that Austrian and Austrian Germans should rule this Habsburg Empire. The Compromise of 1867 was essentially a defeat of the idea that Germans, and only Germans, would rule in the Habsburg lands. But that was all to come. For now, Bismarck was getting in the back door in a way. He was anticipating the problems the Austrians would have. And he was demonstrating that Prussia could be much more flexible than perhaps the Austrians could. And this is not to say that Bismarck had any intention, really, of allowing democracy to enter into Prussia. But he could at least use it as a weapon and bluff his way to the point where it seemed as though he would accept it. If only the other Germans would. But of course, as we said, they could not. Most of them could not, at least. And Austria led the way in this defiance, refusing to be bound by such a dangerous device as democracy. So Bismarck had found a way to discredit the Congress of Princes to King Wilhelm in private, and then, to drive the point home further, he used the democratic idea to discredit the Congress of Princes publicly. With this one-two punch of the private and the public killing of the Congress of Princes, the Congress of Princes itself couldn't last all that long. It had pretty much dissolved itself before the end of September, and with that, Bismarck had dealt the killer blow to what in retrospect would be seen as Austria's last effort to contest the German question. Had the servant become the master? Had Bismarck, through the manipulation of his king and the manipulation of Austrian opinion and stoking up their fears, 
Had he shown that whether it was at home in domestic policy or abroad in foreign policy, he could find the right answer and he could overwhelm or outmaneuver or overawe his opponents to the point that they retreated. He threatened the Saxons with war, just as he threatened the Austrians with democracy. It seemed that Bismarck had an answer for everything. It seemed as though he had a get-out-of-jail-free card for any crisis which he came across. Yet Bismarck was still unpopular. But that didn't matter to Bismarck as much as the other problem he was facing, his exhaustion. His sheer sense of exhaustion and stress these two byproducts are understandable when we consider that Bismarck had sustained his career only by a process of constant intimidation and manipulation and really a struggle with the king. It was very hard indeed to persuade the king towards a given course, especially when you were the only person who was capable of doing this. Bismarck, like he was a party of one, was also an army of one. He had no one to really back him up when he came up with a particular policy especially when that policy seemed to go against the grain of what was popular or what was considered the right course. Bismarck, as it happened, was enduring the last few months of his unpopularity. He couldn't know it for sure, but within a few months a war crisis would come to change the narrative. For the moment, though, he could write to Johanna on the 28th of August, 1863. I wish that some sort of intrigue or another would install another ministry so that I could, with honour, turn my back on this uninterrupted stream of ink and withdraw to the quiet of the country. This restless life is unbearable. For ten weeks I have been doing nothing but secretarial service in a coaching inn. Here again we see Bismarck's penchant for decrying the political career and wishing, longing even, for a career instead as a country squire. Remember, the career of a country squire had made him impossibly bored. And this was the war within Bismarck's brain, and his heart and soul as well. While he loved the country and he loved solitude, he loved holding power in his hands even more. Even though it made him ill, even though it made him exhausted, even though it made him anxious and wish for a break, perhaps at the end of the day, Bismarck simply needed a holiday but he was not to get one yet. So what did Bismarck have to show for his first year in power? Perhaps, looking back, we can say that he had been a bit naive. Let's not forget, Bismarck had the idea that once he had become minister-president, everything would change in his favour. He imagined that he'd play the land tag off against itself and somehow delay the military reform bill so that he could turn his attention to foreign affairs instead and contest the German question with the Austrians. Bismarck had sort of done this. He had managed to put the Austrians away, and he had managed to kill the Congress of Princes idea dead, much to the chagrin of the Austrian Emperor himself. But Bismarck had only stuck around because he had done something which, surely, he can't have imagined he'd have to do when he took up the job. He was only in power now, in late 1863, because he had been willing to go beyond what was normally expected of a minister-president. Normally, when a minister-president makes himself known to be an opponent of what the king wanted, that minister-president could not be expected to last all that long. Yet Bismarck hadn't just lasted, he'd also persuaded the king to see things his way. This took a Herculean amount of energy, but it also required Bismarck to use some underhanded tactics, as we said. Did he imagine that he'd be forced to use these underhanded tactics? Perhaps he thought that the king would just go along with him. Or maybe he didn't believe, 
at the beginning of his minister presidency that he would disagree on so many levels with the king. Either way, even though he had come to dominate Wilhelm, Bismarck also had to admit that he was more dependent on the king than ever before. This epiphany that, through the king, Bismarck would ignore everyone else and pursue an independent policy, was an epiphany that seemed to have arrived within Bismarck's mind by this point. But reaching this epiphany and accepting it hadn't made the stress go away. If anything, it spoke to a future that would be very difficult indeed. It would be a career of constant struggles, a constant war against the king, as you tried your very best to persuade him to see things your way. Bismarck had succeeded in this respect before a few times, but could it be guaranteed he would always be able to do so? Could it be guaranteed that in the future he would always have the energy required to fight a constant battle of opinion against his king? What if he ran out of weapons to fight this battle? What if the king called his bluff if Bismarck threatened to resign? He couldn't hang on forever. He also couldn't hang on forever in the Landtag. That military reform bill still hadn't been passed, and the Landtag itself was still full of liberals, so Bismarck had a lot of work to do in this regard. After having spent all his energy fighting with his king, he probably had little to spare for the liberals, or for the Landtag generally. Not that he was all that fond of it to begin with. The Landtag had never been a priority for him, and he had hoped to put the military bill on the long finger, and he had been disappointed when it turned out that the king was, in fact, far more eager for this bill to pass than he had expected. Bismarck knew that he would need to dominate the king in the future if he was to get his way, especially if the king disagreed fundamentally with what Bismarck was doing, which was likely since Bismarck seemed to be the only one who knew exactly what he was doing at this point. Bismarck was desperate for a break even before the Congress of Princes incident blew up, as we saw, but he would have to wait. Bismarck realised he would have to use all of his energy to stay on, but he also had to come to terms with the fact that fruit ripened very slowly in Prussia. The Franco-Russian alliance which Bismarck had hoped to attach Prussia to was now uncertain. Hostility towards Austria was possible, and the Congress of Princes' idea had shown that in Vienna and in Berlin, there was certainly no chance of any mutually beneficial union being arranged at any time in the near future. The German Confederation threw a spanner in the works of Bismarck's plans because it couldn't be certain which way each of those individual German princes would go, but it was fairly certain that they would side with the Austrians, especially if Prussia was painted as the aggressor. Did this make Bismarck rethink his whole policy? After a year on the throne, did he decide, perhaps, that some of his more ambitious or extreme aims were not really achievable? Maybe he should change course instead. Of course, the remarkable thing is that Bismarck didn't really have a plan B. He stuck to his plan A unrelentingly, to the very end, until he had achieved all of its aims and ticked all of its boxes. I want you to imagine what Bismarck's situation would have been like. I don't know if you've ever had a job with a difficult boss, but imagine having to argue every day with your superior in order to get what you wanted. Imagine how anxious you'd be knowing that at any moment your superior could dismiss you without a second thought. Therefore, you would have to find some balance between forcing your superior, or Prussia's king, to see things your way. But you didn't want to offend your superior too much that they tried to get rid of you. It was, 
and we have to emphasize this, a completely bizarre and definitely unhealthy and pretty unprecedented historical relationship between Bismarck and the king. But this strange way of doing things was essential for what Bismarck was to do next. Persuading his king to stand with him and not fire him after the Blood and Iron speech had been quite the challenge. The Alvensleben Convention had been a worrying and stressful occasion, which was made worse by the unpredictable variables from across Europe. This war to persuade Wilhelm to avoid the Congress of Princes had been a bitter and all-consuming nightmare for Bismarck, and it left both men in tears. By the end of these three experiences, Bismarck could well claim some measure of battle scars and a little bit of success, but Bismarck was still known mostly for his formidable personality than for any lasting triumph. He still wasn't really seen as someone who had vindicated his reputation, which he had mostly parroted himself, as someone who could get things done and fix the king's problems. But the infamy of Bismarck's character was soon to be superseded by the fame which he acquired as a triumphant minister who brought glory to Prussian arms. Bismarck was almost there, he just hadn't quite reached that point yet. I feel I've grown 15 years older in this one year. People are even more stupid than I had thought. This Bismarck confessed to an old family friend in late October 1863, who had visited Bismarck's apartment in Berlin, and was shocked by the minister-president's appearance. The 48-year-old Bismarck appeared far older than his years, and the spectacles of the first year had made him exhausted, depressed, and weak. As if trying to buoy Bismarck's spirits, his friend had said, I am sure you'll feel much younger again, as soon as we see some great new turn in foreign affairs. Bismarck could hope for such a turn in foreign affairs, which might make him refocus on foreign policy, the thing that he loved more than anything else, but he had no reason to be optimistic that this would happen. While broadly successful, Prussian policy and Bismarck himself were still unpopular. They were seen as anti-liberal, more recently they were seen as the hammer of the Poles, and among the pool of potential allies, only the Russians seemed to not hold some kind of grudge against Prussia. As we said though, Bismarck was less concerned about popularity and more concerned about his ill health. But so long as he had enough energy and enough good health to get by, he could keep going. He was soon to prove that popularity was nothing when you had power. Power was only useful in an ideal opportunity, but as we know, Bismarck was adept at spotting an opportunity where he could turn criticism of his ministry around and change his own image as well. A nice coincidental side effect of a successful policy. The opportunity, this new turn in foreign affairs which Bismarck hadn't been expecting or really hoping for, came around. It came in a familiar but also confusing problem in the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein on the Danish-German border. The introduction of this new thread to our story means that we really should clarify what was going on in Schleswig and Holstein, and in Denmark generally. There are a few details that we need to address, but I'll try my best not to get too bogged down with all this stuff. I'll try my best, as usual, to not mention too many names, or to overwhelm you with information on the technicalities of the situation. So, in 1460, let's say, we'll start in 1460, the nobles of Schleswig and Holstein, which were two duchies along the Danish border, granted the King of Denmark the titles of Duke of Schleswig and Count of Holstein. 
This united Denmark with these two duchies, but only through treaty and agreement. It was a personal union with the kings of Denmark inheriting these two duchies. It granted a German flavour to Danish diplomacy. It granted prestige to her kings, and it also gave the Danish king a seat in the Holy Roman Empire's imperial diet. Some other European figures could boast similar German perks if they held territory in Germany, but Denmark was known as one of the oldest and most prestigious such powers to hold these perks. Now, it wasn't all good. It was nice to have these German duchies, but having interests in other parts of the continent could, of course, lead you to make some bad policy decisions. And if you know Danish history all that well, and if you've listened to my previous series on the Thirty Years' War, you'll know that in the 1620s, Danish policy went pretty much as disastrous as you could go. King Christian IV of Denmark, who himself ruled for a long time and was a pivotal Danish king, embarked on an intervention into the Holy Roman Empire against the militant Catholic forces of the Habsburg Emperor with disastrous results. The military campaign was little more than a fiasco. And Denmark was overwhelmed by Catholic German forces who had teamed up with another Generalissimo who had just arrived on the scene, Albrecht of Wallenstein. The one-two punch of a German Catholic army and an army directly commanded by the Emperor effectively knocked the Danes out of the war before 1630 and changed the balance of power within Scandinavia as a result. It was an important chapter in Danish history, but by the 1860s, of course, this event was nearly 250 years old. And in that amount of time, the Danish relationship with the two duchies of Schleswig and Holstein had changed, and changed in Denmark's mind for the worse. The problem was German nationalism. Because these two duchies were ostensibly German and contained a majority German population, particularly in Holstein, which was closer to Germany, as Schleswig was kind of halfway up the Jutland Peninsula, if you can picture that. A map of modern-day Denmark would clear all this up, but since I can't very well give one to you, just imagine that long Jutland Peninsula, which juts out of Germany, for lack of a better term, just imagine that that Jutland Peninsula, you know, it contains Schleswig in its lower half. Imagine that, and everything becomes much simpler. If Schleswig is kind of halfway down the Jutland Peninsula, then further down to the kind of bottom of that peninsula was Holstein. Obviously, this meant that Schleswig was a seriously important strategic consideration for Danish kings, being on the same peninsula as their Danish heartland, and Holstein was seen more as a kind of German base, still historically and traditionally important for Danish kings, but not as important as the nearby Schleswig. Hopefully that clears up the geographic issue and we can move on. But if you've any questions or any confusion, do just pull up a quick map of Denmark there and you'll be able to see things for yourself. By 1848, German nationalism as a question had exploded. Prussia had sent military support, if we'll remember, over that crisis of 1848-52. to The crisis had emerged in the first place because the Danish king had tried to change his country's relationship with the two duchies. Rather than just stay in a union with them, as in Denmark and the two duchies were two separate countries but fell to the same monarch, the Danish king in 1848 decided that he didn't like this arrangement anymore. And rather than separate countries, he wanted Denmark to essentially annex Schleswig and Holstein into the Kingdom of Denmark. This would of course granted Denmark's kings much more power, it would have enlarged the territory of Denmark, and it would have added a lot more prestige to this Scandinavian kingdom's score sheet. But 
it was not to be. Annexing these two duchies into his domains was a step too far for the mostly German populations who didn't want to be permanently stuck to Denmark, thank you very much, and were far more interested in the trends of German nationalism which were sweeping across the continent at the time. As a result, conflict erupted, and that was when the Prussians and some other German states sent troops to try and protect the Holsteiners and Schleswigers, I think that's a word, but tried to protect those two duchies essentially from the Danes taking them over. Neither party was particularly successful, because even while the Danes were able to hold on and not be defeated, since the German contribution wasn't all that intensive, the King of Denmark, Frederick VII, wasn't able to annex the duchies either. He was pressured by an international coalition to essentially return everything to the status quo. A new constitution was signed, which said that Danish integrity would be respected by several different countries, in return for the King of Denmark basically not annexing these duchies in the future. Hopefully that makes sense. That was the status quo and the situation which persisted throughout the 1850s. It meant that Danish integrity and Danish security was protected and bound to be respected because a coalition of powers had signed what was called the Treaty of London from 1852. The Treaty of London in 1852 was the end result of all these struggles. It essentially put into law the arrangement we just talked about. The Danish king's territories would be respected, and Denmark itself would not be put in any danger, in return for the Danish king's commitment to keep the status quo arrangement, and not try and annex the duchies, or change the narrative all that much. There was a problem with this arrangement though, which started to almost immediately be felt. You see, King Frederick VII had been put back in control of the duchies, but he had no heirs. Because of this, the Danes needed to find a new heir, and they found it through the female line of a king from further back, one of Frederick's distant cousins. This posed a problem to the German duchies, because for years they'd been inherited through the male line, but now that the succession would be continued through a female line, there was a problem. Salic law held sway in the duchies, and Salic law, we don't really need to get into the technicalities of it, but one of the most important aspects of it was that a female could not inherit a specific territory, and a female line couldn't either. This meant that while Denmark would pass to the new chosen successor after Frederick VII, the duchies would not, because they didn't recognise that new successor as legitimate according to their laws. What was the solution? Partition, some people said. Not so, said Frederick VII. I will pay off the person who's supposed to inherit just those two duchies. And once this man is paid off, everything can revert to normal. Of course, the reality was not so simple. The man who was pegged to inherit just the duchies, thereby separating them from Denmark, was a distant cousin of the King of Denmark, Prince Frederick Augustenberg. Augustenberg was a 16th century descendant of another Danish king, and it was said by those Germans who lived in the duchies, he was the ideal person to succeed to those duchies, thereby creating a national state of Schleswig and Holstein in the German tradition. The Danish king, as we said, was not happy about this, and he paid off Augustenberg to renounce his claims. The only problem was, he didn't pay him off in full, so Augustenberg didn't renounce his claim either. Now, I've just summarised this issue in a few sentences, but it dominated Danish policy throughout the 1850s, as different governments rose and fall because of it. 
because of a belief that they had kowtowed to the German Confederation, and a belief on the other side that Danes should stand firm in the face of this German intransigence, and should make for themselves the policy which would benefit Denmark directly, annexation of the duchies. It's safe to say, in other words, that King Frederick VII of Denmark had not given up on the idea of annexing Schleswig and Holstein into Denmark. It was still his primary aim. It was still the thing that he really wanted to do, and evidently he wanted to be known for this as well. If you're a bit confused as to what's going on, not to worry. You're not alone. Palmerston, the British Prime Minister at the time, was heard to say that Only three people have ever understood the Schleswig-Holstein question. One is dead, one has gone mad, and I have forgotten. Apologies if my explanation for the Schleswig-Holstein thing has confused you more than it has given you clarity, but really it wasn't that complicated, and if you are confused, it's just because I'm bad at explaining it. Two duchies couldn't succeed to the Danish line, so they had to go their own way, but they wouldn't because the King of Denmark had paid off their designated successor, except he hadn't paid them quite well, so the situation was basically in limbo, and Frederick VII tried to cut through this limbo by doing something pretty provocative. In spring of 1863, he essentially renounced that constitution of 1849, which had essentially respected the status quo, and declared that Danish territory would be respected so long as the Danes respected the independence of the two duchies and didn't try to annex them. By renouncing that old constitution and paving the way for another one, the King of Denmark was moving very provocatively on the world stage. He was also undoing that Treaty of London from 1852, which had solidified these agreements between the duchies and the Danes and legitimised them in international law. It was known, in other words, thanks to this 1852 treaty, that if someone were to attack the Danes, then the signees to this 1852 treaty would come to Denmark's aid. However, because of what Frederick VII did here, because of his renunciation of that constitution, he was also renouncing one of the main tenets of that 1852 treaty, which meant that 1852 treaty was void, which also meant Danish integrity and Danish security was no longer protected by those people who had signed it. This was the roundabout way in which Bismarck would help to justify his attack on Denmark later on, but we're not quite done explaining the build-up to this crisis just yet. Where did Bismarck stand on this German question? We've said before he wasn't all that interested in German nationalism, so did he really care if the Danes took advantage of their duchies and annexed them into Denmark proper? Well, Bismarck had several opinions on the matter. First and foremost, he didn't want Denmark to annex the duchies, because that would make Denmark more powerful and might potentially throw a wrench in his plans for German unification and Prussian aggrandizement in the future. So if uh, empowered Denmark was bad, then creating an independent state of Schleswig and Holstein with the Duke of Augustenburg at its head was even worse as an option. The reason for this was that this theoretical state, an independent state of Schleswig and Holstein, which removed its attachments to Denmark and tried to branch out by itself, would be very liberal. This new state of Schleswig and Holstein would only oppose Prussia in the German Confederation, And the last thing Bismarck wanted was to add to the list yet another ungrateful German state which didn't understand that Prussia only had its best interests at heart. 
It was far simpler to find option C. Option C to Bismarck was the annexation of these duchies by Prussia. By annexing the duchies, Bismarck believed Prussia would be showing its leadership of the German question. A lot of valuable land would be coming into Prussia, as Holstein and Schleswig contained valuable farmland, productive mines, and the potential to build something called the Kiel Canal, which would have cut through the Jutland Peninsula, essentially, and avoided the straits, which one passes through when they're going from the North Sea into the Baltic Sea. Bismarck believed if this canal could be created, then a Prussian navy could be created as well. And he was receiving some generous words from the direction of the French, to the effect that it was high time that some of the traditional not-naval powers should get on board this naval train and make a navy for themselves. Napoleon III was probably thinking of a scenario where several small navies, perhaps an Austrian navy, a Prussian navy, a Greek navy, etc., etc., were all combined together, and in this combination, they could better combat the British supremacy at sea. This is not to say that Napoleon III was actively planning for a war with the British, but the more leverage you had in international affairs, the more likely it was you would have your voice heard. This was how Napoleon III saw matters, but Bismarck wasn't purely interested in a navy just for the sake of helping the French out. He wanted it because at this point in his career, he believed it would give Prussia more options. Armed with a navy, it was by no means essential that the Prussians went along with the French. They could link up with the Russians. They could link up with the British as well. They could forge more useful agreements. And they would certainly expand their prestige and potential and options, having this naval arm at their disposal where they hadn't had one before. Bismarck was far more interested in the potential of land armies, but he was by no means counting out the potential which a navy could give especially when it seemed as you were out of options, sometimes it was good to think outside the box. And the Kiel Canal certainly spoke to a potential which Bismarck felt hadn't been properly considered for some time. But on top of all this, we must say that Bismarck had a negative aim in mind. It was all very well to occupy these territories and to expand a Prussian navy, to make a Kiel Canal, to exploit the lucrative mines, etc., etc., but one of the greatest advantages to occupying the duchies would be that that independent state of Schleswig and Holstein, which Bismarck feared, wouldn't be allowed to emerge. In that sense, you can say that Bismarck moved towards the idea of annexing the duchies for the sole reason that he didn't want those duchies to become an independent state and then undermine his interests. But actually, Bismarck did more than that. He didn't just begin to warm to the idea of annexing the duchies, he warmed to the idea of fighting Denmark for these duchies. You see, you couldn't very well brazenly march soldiers in the direction of these duchies and publicly annex them. That would have caused outcry. But what if you could cloak your real intentions in language which spoke less to Prussian aggrandizement and more instead to the defence of German nationalism, to German independence, even to German liberalism? all of which had to be defended against the rapacious Danes, whose king was only interested in annexing these duchies and ruling them as their sovereign. An absolutist sovereign, don't forget. So Bismarck was armed with his excuses, but he was also, as was often the case in his career, lucky in events. Only a few days after putting the finishing touches on a new constitution for Denmark, which would essentially see Denmark rule over the duchies, 
the king of Denmark, Frederick VII, suddenly died. And this made the succession far more urgent. And it also made the Schleswig-Holstein question a lot more confusing. If the constitution that had tied them to Denmark was now void, and if the new one that was supposed to annex them straight into Denmark was still in the pipeline, and if there was no king to rule over whatever arrangement might be put in place, then what were these duchies to do? Well, before they could decide, the Danes answered the question for them. And the Danes tried their best through diplomacy, through pressure, through coercion and everything else to make sure that these duchies didn't try to go into business for themselves, but it was no use. War fever seemed to be in the air. And leading this war fever and encouraging it along was, well, it was Bismarck, yes, but it was also someone else. Remember that Duke of Augustenburg who we mentioned earlier? Well, he was a pretty popular guy. He was not only young enough and good-looking enough to be considered charming, he was also very well-connected. He was a friend to the Prussian royal family. He had played around, he had gone hunting, etc., with Frederick, the crown prince, and he was also well-educated, being at Bonn University and distinguishing himself there. He was a popular guy, in other words, and he seemed like the ideal candidate to lead this independent duchy's state into the future. Little did Augustenberg know, of course, that Bismarck was not going to allow this to happen in a million years. But Bismarck didn't have to tell him right away. Instead, he could lead Augustenberg on and make a show alongside a few other partners, perhaps, and make a show in acting in the name of Augustenberg and in the name of these duchies and their desire for independence. Now, we mentioned just there that Bismarck acted in concert with some other powers, and he did, that is true. He acted in concert with some German states in the German Confederation, because once the King of Denmark died in the middle of November, and it was quite clear that conflict would soon be in the offing, some soldiers were authorised by the German Confederation to move into Holstein, Holstein being the more German of the two duchies, while Schleswig being closer to Denmark, probably wouldn't be invaded unless a proper war was declared. The German Confederation at this point was loud in its insistence that under no circumstances would the Danes be allowed to annex the two duchies as Frederick VII had intended to do. If they did insist on doing this, the German Confederation declared, then there would be war. This crisis, which was unfolding in November and December of 1863, suited Bismarck very well indeed, because if a war did erupt, then he could march Prussian soldiers into the duchies and annex them, in the name of Augustenburg on the surface, but in reality in the name of Prussia. Interestingly, there's reason to believe that Bismarck had never truly counted this Danish crisis out, and that he had always seen in it the potential to bring about a conflict which he could turn to Prussia's advantage. In November 1862, so a year before any of this crisis had really bubbled to the surface, he had been advising Rune to prepare contingency plans for a war with Denmark. And a month later, Rune would reply from the Prussian War Office that The eventuality of a military solution to the long-standing issue with Denmark has been continually borne in hand by this War Office. So Bismarck had always kept his eye on the duchies then, so it seems. But the Alvesleben Convention and the Congress of Princes had occupied more of his attention in the previous half of 1863. Whatever Bismarck's aims, he had to consider the German Confederation. If the German Confederation decided not to do anything and decided to pacifically just let those two duchies go, 
then Prussia would find it difficult to appear as the sword of German nationalism and of the voice for the voiceless Germans repressed by the Danes. As we said though, fortunately for Bismarck, the German Confederation voted to use force if necessary. German solidarity was handy for Bismarck, but he would have to be careful to control the furies of that confederation. Remember, he couldn't allow this fury to go unchecked, or Augustenberg, before Bismarck knew it, would be established in an independent Schleswig-Holstein state. At this point, in the last few weeks of 1863, several questions started to swirl around the anxious courts of Europe. For sure, it was hard to imagine that Denmark would be able to defeat a united German front, but another question was also relevant. Would other powers get involved if war erupted? After all, several countries in Europe had signed up to that 1852 Treaty of London, which, yes, Frederick VII had technically made void by his renunciation of the Constitution, which bound it all together, but this was not accepted by all. In Britain, for example, where the most amount of debate went on, there was a real school of thought emerging that whatever happened, Britain couldn't stand by and let the Danes be stamped on. This was surely a source of concern for Bismarck. If he acted too aggressively or too hastily, this could be the moment where the powers of Europe dogpiled onto Prussia as punishment for Prussia's preemptive attempt to annex Danish land. British sentiments, after all, were already overwhelmingly pro-Danish, as they often were when the little guy was under threat from the big guy. So long as the Prussians were careful, though, and so long as Bismarck acted in concert with the German Confederation, and so long as the Danes resisted and continued to increase the tension, making a proper war more likely, it was possible that Bismarck could manipulate this crisis into the outcome that he wanted. He would also have to watch out for Austria. Austria could pose a counter-argument to Prussia, and could argue for the establishment of an independent state of Schleswig and Holstein under Augustenberg. If the Austrians decided that they were determined to go to war in the name of the duchies, and if they then decided to hamstring Prussia by making her sign some kind of declaration or treaty to the effect that they were going to fight a war to establish an independent state of Schleswig and Holstein, then what would Bismarck do? Well, certainly he wouldn't allow himself to be hamstrung in the first place. He would make sure that Prussia was never legally committed to establish an independent state of Schleswig and Holstein. And he would make sure at the same time that even while Prussia wasn't compelled to establish this state, it would look as though she intended to do so even while she did not. Once again then, Bismarck would be trying to fool and outmaneuver his rivals. And once again, it was bound to work. Bismarck's genius in the Schleswig-Holstein crisis is thus multi-layered. On the one hand, he identified the goal, the annexation of the duchies, and the defeat of the independent Schleswig-Holstein idea. On the other hand, he identified the best way to realise this goal. It was a plan so ambitious and surprising that Bismarck's peers might well have had to sit down and take a breather. You might have to do the same, guys, so make sure you're prepared. Did their eyes deceive them, or was Europe watching on as Otto von Bismarck, the agent of Prussian aggrandizement and the great rival of Austria, now advocating a Austro-Prussian alliance with the aim of defeating the Danes?
Well, yes, indeed, Europe did not need to wipe its eyes. This is exactly what Bismarck was doing. A forgotten aspect of Bismarck's career is that here, just two years before he would destroy Austrian influence in Germany, Bismarck created one of the most effective cases of united German action since arguably the Napoleonic Wars. But why? Why did Bismarck believe that in order to seize these duchies, the best strategy would be to ally with Austria? Well, Bismarck's explanation was based on the understanding he had of European affairs and of, particularly, the British habits when it came to diplomatic action. As Bismarck wrote in his memoirs, The developments of Danish affairs proved that when Austria and Prussia were united, they represented a power in Europe that none of the other nations would be likely to attack with a light heart. As soon as Austria, under Count Reckberg, was successfully won over to act in unison with Prussia, the weight of the two German states was sufficient to prevent any desires of interference on the part of the other powers. In the course of her more recent history, England has always felt the need of allying herself with one of the military powers of the continent, and has sought to satisfy that need, from the point of view of English interests at the moment, sometimes at Berlin and sometimes at Vienna. A sudden transition from one point of support to the other, as happened in the Seven Years' War, has not seemed to her a reason for cherishing any nice scruples against the charge of leaving old friends in the lurch. But when the two courts were united and allied, English policy did not find it too advantageous to take up a hostile attitude towards them. In alliance, so this coalition of Austria and Prussia might be, with one of the powers most dangerous to her, France and Russia. The moment, however, there had been a split in the Austro-Prussian alliance, the interference in the Danish question of the European elders in convention assembled, led by England, would have followed. If, therefore, our policy was not again to leave the track, insistence on an understanding with Vienna was of the utmost importance. Therein lay our protection from Anglo-European interference. Here it all was, then. This was another example of Bismarck laying his manifesto out, and it goes to show us that, even while on the surface it seems crazy, and the very craziness and contrariness of it might stun his rivals, in reality, Bismarck was thinking deeper than any of his contemporaries could have imagined. It was the case that Britain had often interfered when a single military power in Europe had been active, if Prussia had acted on its own in the Danish case, for instance, we might have seen a more active British foreign policy. But in this situation which Bismarck had created, where Austria and Prussia operate in unison, that was far too much of a challenge for the British to contend with, especially if the Austro-Prussian coalition also saw eye to eye with France or with the Russians. This essentially meant that Britain was left out in the cold. She was diplomatically outmaneuvered, and she had been put in this position thanks to Bismarck. If the British wanted to act in the Danish case, and if she wanted to act against the Prussian interest, then she'd have to fight all of Germany, including Austria and Prussia. This first part of Bismarck's policy, the Austrian alliance, was nothing less than insurance against failure. The second part of this policy comes later during the war, when he manipulated Augustenberg into refusing the inheritance of the duchies, as we will see in episode 8. For now though, Bismarck went with the flow, for lack of a better term. Let's recap what had happened so far, just so we're all on the same page. On the 15th of November 1863, King Frederick VII of Denmark died. 
but two days before his death, a new constitution which would incorporate the duchies into Denmark was passed. This crisis worked to Bismarck's benefit, because Denmark was now kingless and now had a constitution which many didn't understand and many outside Denmark were not willing to accept. Because of this, Denmark was cast as the aggressor in the minds of many small German states who sympathised with the plight of the Germans in Schleswig and Holstein and likely remembered what had happened a decade before, in 1848, when the German nationalist dream had been defeated by those domineering Danes. The Danish succession also posed new questions. Would the new Danish king accept this new constitution, or would he return to the old one? And who was this new Danish king? Well, that distant relative of the female line of Frederick VII was crowned as King Christian IX in late November 1863. Around the same time, the Duke of Augustenburg was proclaimed Frederick VIII of the Schleswig-Holstein state, and news of Augustenburg's determination to pursue the Schleswig-Holstein idea was met with enthusiastic approval throughout German public opinion. Augustenburg would, apparently, be the leader of the two duchies, and he would defend them against the new Danish king. The German Confederation would support Augustenburg, so war was now surely inevitable, unless somebody backed down. So where would Bismarck fit into this equation? Well, remember his goal. He was happy to ride the wave of nationalism in Germany, but only to a point. And at some point, he would have to disappoint Augustenburg in Schleswig-Holstein if he was to have any hope of annexing the duchies into Prussia. Edward Crangshaw provides us with some perspective on what was going on in Germany at the time, and might even give us more perspective and clue us in on, on why Germany seemed willing to go to war for the sake of the duchies in the first place. Crankshaw wrote, The whole of Germany was straining to march in their support of the duchies. The ferment was such that even Bismarck at his coolest could no longer ignore it. All Germany clamoured for war. Something had to be done, and done fairly quickly. Bismarck had no objection to war in general, or to war with Denmark in particular, but we remember his insistence in his notorious defence of Prussia's climb down in the face of Austria at Almutz 13 years earlier at the very outset of his political career. That being the only healthy foundation for a large state, and this was what marks it off from a small state, is state egoism rather than romanticism, and it is unworthy of a great state to fight for something which does not concern its own interest. Gentlemen, Bismarck had said at the time, show me an objective worthy of war, and I will go along with you. Was this Schleswig-Holstein crisis worthy of war? To Bismarck, it certainly seemed so, but it wouldn't be worth it if, in fighting for those duchies, all that was achieved was that a super-liberal Schleswig-Holstein state was created in northern Germany. That wouldn't benefit Prussia at all. If Bismarck acted then, it would be to empower Prussia, and certainly not to weaken her. Bismarck wanted to have his German cake and eat it. He would use German nationalism to advance Augustenberg's cause, appearing as the foe of the Danes and the friend of the German Confederation, only to find a way to undermine both of them at the peace table, as we'll see. He was able to harness German sentiment to Prussia's advantage, but he was also able to control the narrative, and he held off for a while as 1863 became 1864 from engaging in any rash policies, even though it seemed certain that the war would erupt soon. Fortunately for Bismarck, as we said, he had the German Confederation on his side. 
On the 7th of December, 1863, they had voted to enforce the treaties on Denmark by force if necessary. A few weeks after this, just as the new year was coming, Hanoverian and Saxon troops entered Holstein to enforce the decision of the German Confederation to return Denmark effectively to the status quo and to protect the duchies from annexation. Still though, the Danes were not backing down. They refused to return to the status quo and they certainly refused to grant Schleswig and Holstein any independence. German soldiers were too nervous to escalate the conflict and enter into Schleswig, which was much closer to Denmark and further up the Jutland Peninsula, so a kind of stalemate endured for much of January 1864. In response to this Danish intransigence, Prussia and its newfound friend Austria would surely be required to act. Bismarck wanted to act, but he was not the dictator of Prussia. How did the King of Prussia and Prince Frederick think of the situation that was now developing? Well, Bismarck recorded a Crown Council meeting in mid-November 1863, where he revealed... The gradations which appeared attainable in the Danish question, every one of them meaning for the duchies in advance to something better than the existing conditions, culminated, in my judgment, in the acquisition of the duchies by Prussia, a view which I expressed in a council held immediately in mid-November 1863 after the death of King Frederick VII of Denmark. I reminded King Wilhelm that every one of his immediate ancestors, not even excepting his brother, had won an increment of territory for the state. Frederick William IV had acquired Hohenzollern and the Yad district. Frederick William III, the Rhine province. Frederick William II, Poland. Frederick II, Silesia. Frederick William I, Old Hither Pomerania. The Great Elector, Further Pomerania and Magdeburg, Minden, etc. And I encouraged him to do likewise. While I was speaking, the Crown Prince raised his hands to heaven as if he doubted my sanity. My colleagues remained silent. This extract should tell us all we need to know about the sentiments of the Prussian royal family. They might have been happy to help out their friend Augustenberg and propel him to be a leader of the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, but they were understandably nervous about such a great conflagration happening nearby their borders. They were also probably nervous of what Bismarck was planning. He might have told them his intentions, but they could never be sure that what he told them was actually the truth. Bismarck would have to hide the truth long enough to persuade his superiors that the action that he wanted to take was the right course, and we'll see him do that in the next episode. But for now, it's worth noting that in this extract, Bismarck recalls how he appealed to Wilhelm. He appealed to Wilhelm's ancestors and his memory and the glorious Prussian armies who would march over territories and annex them. Every king or ruler of Prussia has enjoyed some measure of military success, has enjoyed some measure of territorial expansion. What will you do, King Wilhelm? Will you let down this trend, or will you further it, and will you add your own stamp on Prussian expansion by acting here? It's interesting, of course, to see Bismarck posing this question to Wilhelm in this way, because Wilhelm, much to the surprise of Many of his courtiers, perhaps Bismarck, and certainly to the surprise of Wilhelm himself, Wilhelm I would be the most expansionist and, in the sense of his expansion, the most successful king of Prussia ever. The only other king of Prussia who came close was Frederick the Great himself, whose annexation of Silesia in 1740 gave Prussia, then little more than a North German backwater, the power and money it needed to expand even further. 
but that expansion into Silesia was nothing compared to what Wilhelm would achieve, acting as he did under the direction, essentially, of Bismarck. Bismarck, if he wanted Wilhelm to agree with his annexation policy, had to keep working on his king. From the very beginning, Bismarck noted, I kept annexation steadily before my eyes without losing sight of the other gradations. And we can assume that if he kept it before his eyes, he certainly never gave up on it when there was an opportunity to promote the idea. So long as this idea was unpopular though, Bismarck had to tread carefully and he had to maintain the illusion that he was acting mostly to defend these German duchies from their Danish overlords and that he would be happy enough to see either the status quo returned or for this independent duchy state to exist. Of course, the establishment of an independent state of Schleswig and Holstein was the very last thing Bismarck wanted. He would have been willing to appoint to accept a return to the status quo, but if the opportunity presented itself, he was certainly going to try for annexation. In the limited appeals that he made to the king to try and get him around the idea of annexation, and he didn't try too hard in case he gave the game away, Bismarck recorded that the king simply said, I have no right to Holstein. This was a good point. Wilhelm had no right to these duchies, and never in Prussia's history had either Schleswig or Holstein been connected to Prussian lands, or to the Mark Brandenburg taking it before that. As we said, the duchies had been historically linked to Denmark since the 15th century, so Bismarck couldn't use history or tradition as excuses for his annexation. He would have to try a different tactic. If the duchies didn't want Denmark as their overlord, they surely didn't want Prussia as their overlord either. Their best case, they wanted to be independent under Augustenburg, and it certainly seemed like the majority of German opinion was with the duchies in this respect. But Bismarck would have to disappoint Denmark, the duchies, and the German confederation in his annexationist policy. The only question was, how would he do this? Well, he was helped to a degree by Danish diplomacy. By that I mean very bad Danish diplomacy. The Danes were isolated, but they still remained quite belligerent, and having renounced the old constitution, which had legitimised the Treaty of London of 1852, they were also, in international terms, pretty much defenceless, even though they didn't act as though they were. They acted as though that Treaty of London was still in effect, even though they didn't respect one of its main tenets. They also acted as though help from foreign powers was a given. Especially the British, who had made a lot of noise about seeing things the Danes' way. The UK was especially embarrassed by Danish policy, though, and by brazen Danish efforts to annex the duchies into Denmark proper. This created a wrinkle in the image of the brave Denmark resisting the evil aggressors, and certainly, initially, it was difficult to sympathise with Denmark for getting herself into this mess. But as we'll see in the next episode, as the war progressed and as the Danes continued to resist, heroically and stubbornly it must be said, sympathy for Denmark increased in Britain, and that was what Bismarck was afraid of. If sympathy for Denmark remained high, Bismarck was still willing to risk that the United Kingdom wouldn't risk war with all of Germany for the sake of those duchies and for its Danish friends. But just to be certain, to be absolutely certain that the British were taking Germany seriously, he endeavoured to forge an alliance with Austria to bind Prussia and Austria together so that if it did come down to it, Britain would see that it would have to contest this issue with the two most powerful German powers. It wouldn't be some Mickey Mouse coalition of lesser German princes, 
These were the two most powerful German states saying unanimously that they were not going to accept any other settlement than the one which saw the duchies free themselves from Danish rule. Denmark had pretty much walked itself into a mess. All Bismarck had to do was publicly support Augustenberg's policy until the right moment came when he could betray Augustenberg, keep the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, undermine Denmark and the German Confederation, and outsmart Austria and stick it to her statesmen as well. From Schleswig-Holstein, Prussia could gain valuable new land and a strategic naval base, but Bismarck would have to tread carefully. Until the final outcome was possible, Bismarck put the other steps into motion. On the 16th of January 1864, the Prussian alliance with Austria was officially announced. This alliance, which before had been more a rumour than fact, and a rumour which very few believed in understandably, caused a storm and seriously bolstered Bismarck's reputation and popularity. Here he was, so it seemed, putting aside his old hatred of Austria in the name of the common German interest, in the name of the betterment of those duchies, which for so long had chafed under Danish rule and now finally would have a chance to be free, just like all Germans should be. As everyone tried to catch their breath at this breathtaking news, a Danish storm was approaching. Bismarck was adamant, in public at least, that Prussia and its new ally in Austria must brave this Danish storm together. And in the next episode, the final of this series, I know, it's very sad, we're going to examine how this Danish war went down and how Bismarck did in fact achieve what it was that he wanted at the expense of Augustenberg, the Danes, the Duchies, the German Confederation, and the Austrians. The only person who won in this scenario was Bismarck. But little did his contemporaries know that this was only the first of three triumphs. Little more than a year into his regime, Bismarck was already planning to change the world, whether the world wanted to be changed or not. So I hope you'll join me for this final episode right now if you've already downloaded them all because you're a lovely patron or next week because you're a lovely listener and you have to wait a whole week, Saws. Either way, thanks so much for listening and thanks so much for engaging with me in this series as well, guys. I really appreciate it. For more information, you know where to go. The usual channels, the social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc, etc. And if you want to support this show, head on over to Patreon. The link is in the description below. Until next time though, history friends, patrons, PhD pals all. My name is Zach and this has been episode 7 of our Bismarck series. Thanks for listening. I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.